Welcome to the Project Life Podcast. I am Mike Watson. On this podcast, we're going to explore being a dad and operating the world in that role. Also, the other role of just being a dude, being a man in this world. And then lastly, it's about running a business with my wife. So the ins and outs of how we make that happen, advice and things that I've learned over my lifetime and things that actually work to grow our business. So enjoy this episode of Project Life with Mike Watts and have a great rest of the day. Welcome everybody back to Project Life with Mike Watts. Um, I am really excited and grateful to feature today's guest. Uh, her name is Janet Anderson coming to us from North Carolina. And I used to call this lady my boss. It's pretty cool. Um, down in Philip Morris, North Carolina. And we were just chatting because chatting I was like, some a lot of people I have bios on. But I said, Janet, I actually don't have like a bio on you. And you started telling me and I said, hold on, let's record it. So yep. Janet, what can you enlighten me on what your bio is? <clears throat> so my bio is, is, is pretty simple. I grew up overseas as a, as a, I left the United States as an infant and went to Latin America. So I, I grew up in uh, Venezuela, Mexico, Brazil, and, um, at uh, the ripe old age of 17, headed off to Michigan State University and went to a, um, what turned out to be a huge institution. And boy, it was my first sense for how easily you can get lost in a, a hugely large institution. Uh, but I went there and graduated in 70, 1979 with a degree in um, food systems, economics, and management. Uh, I had originally thought I'd go in and try to get into vet school, but that didn't happen. And, um, and that's okay, because um, um, for a lot of reasons. But, but at the end of the day, uh, when I graduated in 79, I moved to North Carolina to work for Frito-Lay. So I was at Frito-Lay for a couple of years, uh, met my now ex-husband, <laughs> got married, and then shortly um, after my daughter was born, I went and joined Philip Morris. And I joined Philip Morris in 1983 uh, as a frontline supervisor. And uh, basically, I worked my way through different levels of management. Um, in, I started in the processing side of the business, where we actually processed all the tobacco. Um, eventually, I went to uh, finished goods where we ship the final product out and then back into cigarette manufacturing ultimately back and forth within that particular manufacturing facility um, and work myself up to a a director and then when we announced the closing of the factory i was put in as an interim plant manager uh, to help shut the factory down uh, and then moved to richmond uh, as when our factory shut down uh, had the opportunity to go to richmond and uh, which is where they consolidated all the operations and went there and was there two years in, uh, in a director's role in, in the cigarette side of the business. And, um, and that sort of came to a quick halt when, when my daughter was, was injured in a domestic violence uh, situation. Um, and so, uh, any attempts to try to remain employed at that point in time were very, very difficult because you're torn between two, two very important uh, 
entities. And uh, ultimately, uh, I, I made the decision to retire and become my daughter's caregiver. Hmm. So it's pretty simple. And now we're talking about your thriving painting career before we started recording. So we'll dive into that in a second. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> I, um, that was a whole lot of information, which it's brought up a lot of questions for me. And I just wanted to say, you know, you and Susan and LaFon, when I was working there, really created a lot of guidance for me um, to kind of create, along with all the people that I worked with at Philip Morris, um, to lead down this, like just a lot of maturity was, I believe for myself, when I reflect back on it was instilled in me based off the leadership that was created inside of the organization. So I just want to say thank you to that to start off the podcast. Cause I really do appreciate that. And for everything that you guys put into step to, to place for individuals inside that company to grow and do what their thing they needed, wanted to do at that time. Um, for you, what were you doing overseas like as a kid? Oh, as a kid. Well, you know, I, um, I, like how I did like you end up of, over there? Well, so my father worked for Chrysler and, um, uh, when, when Cuba became unavailable for a manufacturing site, uh, my, my father moved, uh, they, they sent him down to Venezuela to look at that as an opportunity. And so in 1959, he, he packed up uh, at that point in time, his seven kids um, and off we went. And so I was an infant at the time, but uh, you know, and, and as I look back on it, it was, it was a really, it was a, it was a very nice life. I wouldn't say Venezuela is that way today, but, but back in the late fifties, early sixties, and in through the 60s, it was a it was a good country, nice country to live in. And of course, you know, we lived we lived as as um, on the higher end of the spectrum, per se, compared to the populace. Uh, I mean, we had by virtue of my dad's employment, we had access to, you know, we had the golf club. So dad would go golfing. And when dad was golfing, we'd go to the pool kind of a thing. And so it was a good place for my, my mom to take all these kids to, to knock some energy out before she brought us home. Uh, so we had those sorts of things. I, it's where I learned how to, to ride horses. Uh, again, private, they were private clubs in that particular country. And so I had, a, I had an instructor that was a phenomenal instructor. And, and so I had a, I mean, I had a horse. And, and so it was very idyllic. It was not typical of what typical people live in those countries, but I think by virtue of being an American, uh, pretty darn well protected, and those in our American companies would pay for all kinds of stuff and to make sure that we were comfortable. I mean, it was it was boy, it was it was nice. What can I say? Mm-hmm. Uh, when <laughs> I mean we had a maid, I mean, for criminy bits. And so, I mean, it was like, well, I didn't have to, I didn't have to mop the floor or, or, you know, those sorts of things. And it was, it wasn't until, um, until, until I went away to college and I'm like, whoa, I mean, don't, don't misunderstand me. I wasn't that out of touch. I, I totally right. understood the values. And, and my, I'll tell you, honestly, my parents and my, and probably my mother in particular, who was, uh, you know, but parents that lived through the depression and then my mother was always uh 
and my dad too, you know, make sure that you respect the people that provide a service to you. Uh, just because they are a maid doesn't mean you, they are any less of a human than you are. And they have rights and you have to treat them with respect. Um, so it is, there was no levelism of those sorts of things. It's these folks had a role to play and we were expected to be respectful of them. So we were brought up that way. <clears throat> and I think that that's a philosophy that I have maintained throughout my life. And, and it was a big part, I think, of, of some of the relationships that I built when I was in the manufacturing arena. Uh, just some very basic human dignity type of things. But it, it was an ideal. I mean, I can't, <laughs> wow. You know, it was, it was fun. It was, um, yeah, I didn't, I mean, it was like a, a perpetual, I mean, I didn't have, I didn't have to do anything as a kid except go to school and play or go ride the horse or et cetera. So, I mean, it was pretty nice. Is this when kind of the love of animals started for you? Oh, probably. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you and your animal zoo. <laughs> yeah. I, I won't tell you anything I have right now. <laughs> How many do you, what do you have now? Oh, well, right now I'm, I'm uh, four cats and three dogs. I lost a dog two weeks ago and a cat on New Year's Day. So, um, yeah. Now, in all fairness, these, <laughs> in all fairness, I, I, uh, these, uh, these critters have been around a long, long time. And uh, the, the last, I got two kittens that came to me about two years ago because the, the, a friend of mine, had um they were feral little kitties and he was going to take them to the pound and i was like nah bring them here so anyway but everybody else has, has been with me quite a quite a long time so you know, i was always amazed the operation um let's talk about the seven children what is happening there i'm just kidding we don't have to talk about that when you say so you had six brothers and sisters I have set, I had seven brothers. I have lost one brother. And then I have a half sister from my dad's first marriage. You have seven, you had seven brothers. Yes. Wow. Yes. What did that, um, like, what, what did that teach? You know, like that was a lot of testosterone. Well, you know, I'll be, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I think, um, I think that probably made me, uh, a, a whole lot more thick skinned. Um, you know, you don't, you, you I learned very early on, my mother was a very wise woman and she, my brothers used to tease me because they knew my love for horses. And a uh, hundred years ago in the movie, uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They came out. And I remember my brothers, and it wasn't about necessarily about shooting horses, but they played on me. And I'll never forget on one of our home leave trips and we were coming from one place in Florida to another and we were all in the car and they were proceeding to tease me with the, uh, hey, look, there's an Appaloosa. Let's shoot him. You know, just the, the chronic little things you do to tease each other. And I was going nutso. And my mother kept trying to tell me. And it took me a while, years probably, to learn to ignore things that um, you quickly understand. It's just a way for somebody to get under your skin. And, and the real way to win that battle is to truly ignore them. And uh, it took me a little while, but I, again, that's another thing I probably took into work to go, there's just some things you ignore and there's just some things you don't. But, uh, you know, you realize when somebody's baiting you 
and and you take that off the table so that uh, so that you don't get sucked in by the by this the, the stupidity of those acts but uh, and so I you know it was one of those things that I, I guess learning with seven brothers because uh, they're chronically teasing each other and I'm not gonna say it's just seven brothers it's probably that many siblings would cause that level of uh, anxiety and teasing and whatever but uh, so you, you choose to take not you learn not to take the bait hmm. okay I love that um, so I, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on was to talk about this working in a, in a factory setting or in a leadership per, it's um, setting inside of a corporation because one of the things that we we feature a lot of people who are running their own business or entrepreneurs or business owners. And just from what you can learn to, because there's a lot of people that also listen who actually are working inside of companies, right? And so the factors that have helped you kind of move up the ladder, because you also were a young woman going into, you know, after college, like going into a manufacturing environment, which is also not I don't know what Frito-Lay was like or early years of Philip Morris, but I've seen some videos from like super dark times of like Ford and, you know, just with the UAW union that was there and just the, the fights that took place. They showed us a video in college of uh, the seventies. It was from the seventies and people were just like yelling at each other, you know? Yeah. And that's what I was like, wow. Okay. But like how leadership worked for you and what you learned during that time from when the time you started to the, the roles that you ended up definitely in a higher level position inside the company. So what, where, like when you entered the floor after leaving, you know, after leaving it, going to Michigan state, which you said was a huge eye opening experience as well to like going into the workforce, how, what was your first thought when you entered something like Frito-Lay? Um, well, so Frito, so, so my biggest shock was actually I moved from from Michigan to North Carolina. So I had a, I, I never, I was stunned at the cultural difference between the South and the North, even though it was in the late seventies, early eighties, actually I came down here in, right before 1980. And so the transition from a, an environment like Michigan where it, 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 I don't know, say bar on every corner, but certainly access to entertainment, whether it's movies or to go to a bar or to go to restaurants where you can have a mixed drink or, uh, you know, beginning to see more mixed type relationships. When I moved to the South, it was, it was, a, it was an eye opener. It was, Blue laws, nothing open on Sundays. Oh, by the way, if I had, if I wanted to have a mixed drink, I had to drive into Charlotte. Um, I had people that were very worried about what my religious status was. Um, it's just, it was just a real like, oh my, what have I done kind of thing. Um, so that was one of the, the shocks. And so what that kind of did was it forced me to, I, I was, I'm trying to think if I was the only female in manufacturing at Frito-Lay at the time. Um, and I think, I think I was. Hmm. So, um, but 
I mean, and, and they, they put you with another supervisor to train you, to train you very basically. Um, and then they, and, and this was before the days of, uh, uh, you know, any team building or any of those sorts of things. And, and the folks that were at this particular facility, for the most part, had been there a while. You had very, very little turnover. It was a good paying job, good benefits in a small town. So, um, so these folks, these folks knew the work better than I was ever going to know. And <clears throat> my challenge was, I, had, I think the first job I had, I had uh, 23 women working for me, hand packing, whether it was Cheetos, Munchos, or Doritos, or whatever it was we were making. And so, for the most part, it was interesting because you had some women who were like, the old, some of the older women who were like, hey, honey, I'm going to show you how this is done and, and what you need to worry about. So they were very maternal um, and, and wanted to make sure that I was going to be okay. And then you actually had some others that were a whole lot more mil militant who were like, figure it out yourself kind of stuff. So, you know, you, you, again, I think because I was willing to listen, willing to learn, and, and one of the things I – recognize was if I knew a little bit about a person and I started to have conversations with them about who they were as opposed to the work we were doing you begin to break down walls you begin and and, and you're doing it with a genuine interest in that person as opposed to just a casual hey Mary Luther how many kids do you have kind of thing so the fact that I still know her name is kind of crazy but um but in talking to these folks, I think because it was designated as a quote-unquote training facility, they, were re they, they recognized that people would be coming through, and so they didn't have a lot of interest in, in getting to know you, so to speak. And, um, but, but, but I was like, no, I was pretty darn determined to go learn a little bit about each person, kind of figure out what makes them tick, What's important to them? What's the name of their children? You know, uh, stuff like that. And I think that that is something that I that I have taken, or I took through all of my my um, all of my employment experiences. And and what I found was the people that were listened to the least, typically listened to the least, were the ones that responded the most to it. So the hourly workforce on the floor were the ones that I found particularly endearing because I, you know, they're honest. And if you gave them a chance, they would, they would tell you what was wrong. Um, and early on in my career, they were, at, particularly at Frito-Lay, I don't think they were ever asked for solutions. Um, and so I had uh, these 23 women that worked for me. And eventually, I mean, eventually it was, it was a great relationship. Uh, yeah, you always have a couple that are not so happy, but, uh, but that's life. But, but ultimately, um, you know, the again, back to the dignity of people and what they bring to the table because everybody's, everybody wants to be heard, um, some more than others, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you learn who, you know, you learn how to temper those also. But, but ultimately, um, if you genuinely sit down and listen to what they've got to say or as you're walking through, and then you remind them, you know, hey, how's your so-and-so daughter? Or, you know, it, it's, it, it begins to open doors that typically aren't opened if you are just 
like I'm here for business and business only. And, um, you know, uh, folks, folks aren't, you know, they're, they don't have a vested interest in, in helping you be successful except to get you out of the way. Um, so that, um, so, so, so coming to Frito-Lay, sort of my first endeavor um, to begin to understand manufacturing. Um, I've never understood, I mean, we had accounting, obviously, at the end of the day, you know, count how many bags of Cheetos you pack for the day and, you know, balancing your, the number of Cheetos produced and whatnot. But, um, but I think it was, uh, it, was a, it was an interesting opportunity to begin to learn uh, about human nature. Um, something I never studied. I mean, I took a basic psychology class in college because I guess we had to, but never understood the value of it probably until I got into an environment where you start having to work through other people. So um, what would you say, speaking of the piece of like understanding human nature, like what are some of the, do you have maybe one or two pieces of things that have really helped you along your, cause you were, you, you were basically from 79 in manufacturing till when did you, so I, uh, yeah, well, yeah. So I started manufacturing in 79, uh, or yeah, let's call it 1980 for all that purpose. Um, late 79. Um, and then I got out of manufacturing in, uh, 2011. Okay. So basically 31 years. Yeah. And then what was it that allowed you to be, cause there's been a lot of people that have come into manufacturing in those 31 years and not like succeeded, I guess you could say quote unquote succeeded or enjoyed it. So what was it for you um, treating people like human beings? Well, yeah, well, I'll tell you, I think, I think in manufacturing, you, I, I think you absolutely have to like what you're doing because it can be very well, any job can be drudgery, but but I, I was always fascinated by the conversion of a raw material into a finished product, whether it was making Cheetos, whether it was making a car, whether it was making cigarettes. It was just always fascinating to me um, that you could you could make all of these conversions and make it into this package. And then of course I never understood the sales side of the business, but so I think intrinsic to manufacturing is this whole conversion and, and being excited about that conversion. Um, and I think that that is, so that you gotta have a core desire to want to understand it when, and so when I was my introduction, so I was at Frito-Lay for two years basically. Um, and, and that was really very introductory. You know, you, you came in, you, we didn't, I mean, I basically learned the process. There wasn't much to it, quite frankly. Um, it was a tiny factory, so everybody knew everybody. Um, and, and everybody understood their roles. You know, you had a corn cook, and the corn cook would teach you how to cook the corn and those sorts of things. Or the sanitation C-shift would always come in and clean the plant. And, and so we all got exposure to all those sorts of things. But, but it was sort of the introduction of hey, there's a process and there's people that are involved in doing the process. So when I left Frito-Lay, it was basically fundamental 101. When I went to Philip Morris, um, I, so not dissimilar to, to what happened at Frito-Lay. Philip Morris, I think in the late 
in the early 80s was pushing really hard to bring women and minorities into manufacturing. Because when they put me into the, we'll call it primary, primary processing where you process the tobacco, it, was, it had typically been a man's world. Uh, a lot of heavy lifting, not that the supervisors did this, but there was this, there was this it was dirty. I mean, you literally came out of there covered in dust. <laughs> um, it was just a, a, a very, a lot of bulk product, a lot of, you know, thousand pound hogsheads, you know, manhandling, whatever, or woman handling, but anyway, no manhandling. So typically if, if the women worked in the plant, they worked in QA or they worked in accounting. So they worked in these support type roles, but not typically out on the floor, although they did work more in cigarette manufacturing. So when they hired into the plant in, in North Carolina, I think there was an extra push. So, um, and I was fortunate to have had uh, a couple of pretty good bosses along the way. And uh, the, the first part of the plant that I went into um, was a subcategory of the primary process where we actually ex expand tobacco. So it's a proprietary process in and of itself. Um, and so I had a really good group supervisor who really took our hands and kind of walked us through the process and beginning to understand. So, he, so we were moving more to the process side of business um, the plant also had been started with a something they called uh, a Cabarrus philosophy, which was their philosophy for that facility, which was um, bringing in the concept of team meetings. So when the factory first started up, it was like we wanted to include people at all levels of the organization in, in how to make the business better. Unfortunately, that didn't last very long. That lasted maybe five years. But I, I think deep down inside, I, it was almost instinctual that you thought, this makes sense, that they would be part of the process. Um, so even though formally we stopped doing this, uh, probably five or seven years into, my, into the time that I was with the company, uh, which we, Mike, we later on brought back in the, in the way of, mm -hmm. of um, so we, we lost probably 10 years of, of potential growth opportunities because uh, the decisions to, you know, to manage the budget, the first thing that goes is, you know, training and, and these peripheral things that people don't see value in. So unfortunately it went away for a couple of years uh, and then came back and we can talk about that later, but, but ultimately, I began to see the value in understanding the process. I am a visual learner. I could sit me in front of a book all day long, and, I'll, and I'll, my eyes will roll up in the back of my head and whatever. I found that for me to learn, I literally would get out on the floor, and I would walk the process. Um, you know, I, I'd crawl up on a piece of equipment, which would be, an OSHA violation today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I would have gotten fired for it today, but um, but I look. I wanted to know how is the how does the silo fill? Uh, how do these limit switches get made? What happens when this? So I was wanting to know what's the dust collection system? Where does it feed to the machine up here? What? Why am I pulling off? 
you know, how does this separator work? How does these? And so I, I think by virtue of getting out on the floor and folks seeing that you were really wanting to learn the process, they were more than willing to share what they knew. And so that in and of itself creates a connection. Now, it, it, what it means is probably longer days for me because it meant that I still had to go back in and do all the junk that I had to do in my office, like timesheets or production reports or the waste reports, whatever. But to me, the value was, you know, getting out on the floor, learning the process. Uh, heck, you get wet when you clean a cylinder out. You know, I literally wanted to know what these people were going through. So somewhere along the line, somebody, again, I think the company recognized the importance of uh, leadership. Um, and so I was identified, uh, somebody tapped me on the shoulders and sponsored me to go to a leadership development program that the company had developed and, and continues to do it today. And what it was, was they, they picked, uh, group supervisor type folks. By this time, I had been promoted to a group supervisor job. Um, and what they did is they, they would take us, uh, it was a 12-month process. And, and once a month, off I'd go somewhere to learn part of the, part of the business, whether it was uh, New York to learn about marketing, uh, to the Louisville facility to see how they did business, to... Uh, you know, distribution centers to, so we, you know, we would learn different aspects and, and they put us in, uh, maybe there were 15 of us from all around the company, different roles, different responsibilities. And we would, you know, the first, the first time we got together was a team building thing. And then ultimately, uh, we followed each other all around to all these, org these, all of these opportunities to learn different aspects of the business. And, um, and I think what happened in that case, Mike, was that in, in being identified in that pool of people, you were, you were almost automatically identified as, as somebody that would be given another opportunity as, mm. as in a formal position, so to speak. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm sure somebody, uh, and I don't know the background, but I'm going to make this up, was that, was that, look, they invested lots of money in our, our, in our leadership stuff <clears throat> that it was like, so what's the output of this? And so uh, ultimately I think maybe I was given an opportunity by virtue of being in this leadership course that I may not have been given if I had just been left out on the floor without somebody recognizing uh, maybe a capability I had. Got it. Now, how was it for you? That makes sense. I believe I went to the, I went to something in Richmond. Okay. Three day event or is in Charlottesville, Virginia, but I don't know. It was like, I guess a leadership development type of a thing. Probably. Um, <clears throat> so what for you being just, I want to step back a second because when you started, said you started working at Philip Morris, they were trying to bring more women in. So yes. what was it like for you to be a really a, you know, one of the only women working in this all men's environment. Well, and, and I don't want to say that I was, when, so when I, when I went to primary processing, there were probably, oh, golly, uh, I'm, I'm going to guess here. Uh, there were probably 32 supervisors across the three shifts. Um, and of those 32, I'd say maybe a, 
a, a third of them were women at this point. Um, and uh, maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah, a third. That's probably a good guess. Okay. And uh, so like 10, so, 10 people were women. Yeah, 10, ten, women. ten women. Yeah. Now, all the senior leadership was all men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, all white men at that. So, um, and, and interestingly enough, we, we seemed to like to hire a lot of football players at the time. So <laughs> anyway, ex-football players. Uh, like NFL players? Or uh, yeah, one was an NFL, uh, uh, Charlie Richards was an NFL quarterback, I guess, 100 years ago. And a couple of them were college football players and whatnot. Big old, big old hunking kind of big guys kind of a thing. So in and of itself, a tad bit intimidating, you know. Um, although the guy that hired me had come out of Richmond and he was an itty bitty guy. So he had, he had a bit of a Napoleon syndrome, but um, he, um, he, he turned out to be okay. But um, initially I had some altercations with him because um, I had been moved to cut the stores for a period of time before I got promoted. And cut filler storage for the folks basically is way out out of out of sight out of mind until you until you don't deliver tobacco to cigarette manufacturing then everybody wants to know about you and uh, the, the so the director of primary we had a problem in in something in the basement and I was not a man I was not a group supervisor at the time and I remember him coming down you know kind of doing his walkthrough and it was like shit whenever shoot sorry whenever he walked in people were like uh oh, what did we do wrong? Because invariably people wouldn't show up unless there was a problem. And so automatically people got defensive, automatically, you know, it was like, uh oh. So ultimately, um, I recall being called up to a, to a meeting, you know, one of these inclusive meetings with, with Bob and, and the teams. And, and I remember him saying, making some sort of comment about cuts over storage. And I said, you know, if, if you would, just bother to come down more frequently, except, you know, when, whenever we don't screw stuff up, um, maybe we would feel like we're part of the primary business. And, and I mean, the room went absolutely stone quiet. Like I had made this, this grievous <laughs> comment, like I had slapped him and I'm like, it's the truth. I mean, nobody comes to the basement unless there's a problem. So if you want the pro the, this particular department to feel like they're part of your department, then you should include them more often than just when we have a problem. So, um, so you know, I'm surprised that maybe I got some other opportunities after that. But, but I, but I didn't say it in a manner that was mean or anything else. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was just a matter of fact. Hey, you know. Maybe, maybe if folks felt that you were behind, you know, you were backing them up, that they back you up kind of a thing. Well, it goes back into what you said earlier when you were working at Frito-Lay and got started there where you were, you were always interested in like standing on top of a piece of equipment, you know, climbing in to figure out how these things work is that your example of connecting with other coworkers is actually being involved with other coworkers, like learning about them, finding out who they are. Absolutely. And this example you're sharing is just like, well, we're going to come down when there's a problem. And so it just locks in fear. Exactly. When you see the boss man come through, it's just like the only reason you see him is because there's a problem. Exactly right. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So how I want to transition to 
a little bit like later in your career when you're the director of, um, you know, just being in a director role. Because one thing that I do notice when I think back to even the management team in cigarette manufacturing where I was working, it was predominantly women. Yeah. I think it was like 75% women, right? Yep. it, It changed. Yeah. And why... Was that on? Was that something that had to do on purpose, or was it just like, it just naturally was just like these these women are fantastic leaders, and kind of what what was that transition? Did that naturally happen, or um, because uh, you're right? Because most of the time you walk in, it's all dudes. You yep. know, it's all men. So, well, you know, it's interesting because um, Mike, I've never taken a step back to go. Hey, fast forward 10, 15 years, and the, dyna- the, the, the whole makeup of the team is dramatically different. And, and so, uh, yeah, because it was Susan LaFon, Elizabeth Miller. Uh, you have Susan. to look around. Yeah, ex- Su- yeah, so you're right. It, it was minus Ferris Chestnut, who ironically was in an administrative position. Who um, hired me. Did you know that? Oh, Ferris did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he interviewed, he was my communication like that when I ended up getting hired, which I always oh, loved yeah. his name. I thought his name was the best. He's a good guy. He's a yeah. really good guy. Um, yeah. So Ferris, well, we had Ron. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. Gary. Point. Yeah. Not, not a ton of, and you know, so to your point, I, I think initially the transition was forced um, because it's very easy to rely on what you know and uh, what you're comfortable with. Men typically back in those days were used to teams, women were not. Uh, And so I just, as I reflect back, and I won't go through all the, I mean, we had organizational reviews every year where you have to do evaluate people and those sorts of things. And you would look for people with potential, but you would also say, and the company was very, uh, yeah, they, they, I think they were, they were very cognizant of making sure that we had a mix that reflected um, that was, that was a good mix. So um, I, to your point, we had African-American women, we had, we had white women, we had, uh, we had a pretty decent, I mean, if you think back, you're right. The last team that we had in cigarette manufacturing before it closed down was all women and a vast majority, well, uh, half of them were minority males. Uh, minority female, minority mm. male. Um, yeah. Wow. Ha. Didn't even dawn on me, Mike. <laughs> yeah, it's actually something I pointed out to Kate um, like a few years ago. We were just talking about, because predominantly our core audience is women, and we were talking about, you know, in all the, everything that's been happening in the last decade with just, with Sheryl Sandberg book, Sandberg's, Sandberg's oh, yes. book that yep. came out, and and so then Kate's talked a lot about, you know, women leadership and just leadership in itself and just supporting that as well. And I said, you know, it's interesting when I think back to, I was like, yeah, most of my bosses at that time were all women. I was like, that's pretty cool. And she's like, really? And I was like, yeah. And even the workforce, like on it, like it was very, I don't know yeah. the breakdown of what it was, but there was a lot of, it was very mixed men and women on the manufacturing floor. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it definitely became, Mark, as, as, uh, as, as time moved on, we had, and initially, like I said, it was forced. Um, the HR was very 
at least when I took over as a director of a department, HR was very much in my back pocket. Um, I, I engaged them as a, um, uh, it was mutually beneficial for them to be involved early in any of these processes that I had. And I just wanted to always make sure that I understood what their expectations were so that at the end of the year, we weren't making adjustments that we hadn't been doing along the course of the year. But, but I was always a very, uh, very open person. So uh, some of my colleagues would suggest that I, I allowed HR to be way too involved in my business. But I was like, look, if I got a performance issue, I want to make sure that I'm following the steps and I've got them with me so that I'm not being second guessed at the stage in which I have to terminate somebody. Uh, unless it's a blatant issue, which is very easy to terminate, but, but you steal something, whatever. But, but ultimately, when you're building a case, it was like, no, I, I was very inclusive in making sure that HR, when they would say, look, we want to make sure that there's a certain level of, you know, number of females, number of number of men well we never talked about men but we talked minority how do we make sure that there's a balance of of um uh women and minorities in your organization uh so that uh i mean diversity was a was a very important thing at the time that i was in manufacturing <laughs> okay i want to transition um about how, from a leadership perspective, as you're hiring, you know, for you, what did you look for when people were being promoted or as you're running a department, you know, people that you want to surround yourself with? And then also when you're hiring new people to bring on board, what were the kind of the qualities that you looked for in good leaders to run to help you support and build your department and business? Okay, so from a hiring perspective, um, when I, I'll tell you, I had one opportunity in my career, uh, and this is when I was a manager in finished goods at the, the plant in North Carolina, that I had an opportunity to hire the, mostly the team I wanted. Um, and it was a very unique situation because typically what would happen is... <laughs> Um, you would get, typically get sent somebody that someone didn't want you to deal with, that, that they didn't want to deal with. Okay. Um, and, and, and all, we, we did have those departments where people would send people to, but again, this is kind of where HR stepped in. I was like, you deal with the person where they are, we're not moving them. <laughs> so okay. uh, let's put a pause there sure. before you share about, you know, crafting your own team. How do you, change that because if like you know this person got sent to you because the other leader didn't want to work with them right like how do you change that dynamic to make that person like feel valued of course and then also deliver on what their job is supposed to do well um what i've found what i have found over time is that uh, an opportunity. So, so if I know somebody, Joe Schmo is getting sent to me and I, and I've heard rumblings about Joe or let's Sally, whatever, let's just call him Joe. So, so typically, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll sit down with a person and introduce myself, talk to them, talk to them about expectations. And, and I've, and it depends on, on the performance related issues that, that, that I, have understood them to be. So um, 
if the person is, um, I'm trying to think back on somebody that we were starting to build a case on. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to tell you that I did a great job with all of them, but, but ultimately what I would do based on what I've learned is sit down, establish expectations. Um, depending on the person, you know, you may even confront that person and say, look, I hear this about you. And I, I just want to understand your side of, of what may, and, and you got to be really careful there because then they get super duper defensive potentially, right? But, mm -hmm. So part of it is kind of knowing the person and, you, you know, first of all, you feel them out, kind of get a sense for, you know, are they, are they open to the change? Are they really, are they really unhappy about the change? Um, I was a more of a, a soft-handed, kind of get to know you, kind of try to see what the issues are. Um, I wasn't one of these people that came in and said, hey, I hear this about you. Let me tell you how we're going to do business here. And because I just never found that to be very productive. Because um, they also could have been like in the wrong type of role. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, but I think if you sit down and you're honest with them, and it's like, and part of it is, look, I, look, you're coming here. I'm welcoming you into my department. These are the things that we do in this department. These are the, these are the, the fundamental, uh, don't cross these lines. Like, for example, to me, compliance and safety were, were a non-negotiable. <laughs> and if you felt that compliance was something that you could push around, don't, don't bother working with me because these were non-negotiable issues. You weren't going to put somebody's life at risk. You weren't going to put uh, anybody at risk. Uh, and, and you were sure as heck going to follow the rules as they're defined. Um, those were the non-negotiable issues with me. Um, and then bottom line is you have to have the patience to, to understand and then work with that person. Now, a lot of times it wasn't somebody I could work with directly. Uh, they might be a supervisor that works for a manager, mm -hmm. and in which case you would sit down with a manager and kind of go, where are we? Keep a finger on, on the pulse. And some managers are super duper good about managing these people. Um, Susan Wagner was a perfect one for that. I mean, she was really good at managing and talking and getting people and holding them accountable. But she also had another person who was flat out just flat out mean, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you find out what works for you, but at the end of the day, it was more around establishing expectations, what were goes, what were no goes. And, uh, and when, and when somebody crossed that no go line, it, whether you liked the person or not, they were held accountable to it. Um, when I first moved to Richmond, I can tell you, I, I think within the first two months I was there, I fired seven people because they were non-compliant and they, 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 we won't go into the philosophies between the two facilities, but when I went up there, I was very clear, non-compliance is a non-issue. Y'all have been under the same rules that we've been under for a hundred years, however long, but ultimately at the end of the day, non-compliance is not compliance and it's not an excuse. There's very few excuses for you to not be compliant. Um, and so, as people understand who, who, you know, your boundary, the box that they're allowed to play in, and you give them the latitude to play within that box, 
but there's certain there's certain borders or that around that box that at which point in time they're not allowed to go outside of, and if they don't notify, um, then then that becomes a whole different kind of conversation. Hmm. Okay, now bring me back to what it was like to create your own team for when you were working in finished goods. So what so you my, were looking for in so, people? Yeah, so I I had some I had some older I want to say I had some folks that had been there. Um, you know, for quite a while. Um, and, and then I had other, so I brought in, basically I, I, I had HR, there was a process. HR would, would, would put an ad out in the paper or where, however they did it. But, so we would get resumes and then I would literally, I mean, they would hand me a stack of resumes. Oh my gosh. Uh, well, I mean, in all fairness, they would, they would, re, they would hand me a stack of resumes once they had perused through and, and, factor yeah, people who had no yep. yeah well then then i literally let read like every resume and then from those resumes uh i would identify people so for example i brought in uh paula huffman i don't know if you ever knew paula but she was in finished goods for a while and she ended up becoming a manager down at the warehouse um i brought in i mean i brought so what i was looking for was people who um were what appeared to be even, even, even like I would look at the work that they had done previous to, to their, their application for this job. And I wasn't looking for people that were, I was looking for people that were mildly ambitious, recognizing that not everybody can get promoted in this company. All right. So I was looking for different age groups. It didn't, you know, if they were 45 years old, that was fine because sometimes you just need a good soldier but I was looking for people that were open-minded and that had um, uh, similar experiences, but not necessarily. Like I did want them to have manufacturing background so that they would understand, hey, this is a three-shift operation. And you're, it, so it wasn't new to them that nine to five wasn't a typical day, you know? Um, and that shift work was always going to be there, that there were never, ever guarantees that you were going to stay on a, your, your desired shift. Uh, so people that were flexible, uh, people that uh, had a degree, because I recognize that for people to be promoted in the company, you had to have a degree. So I didn't hire people that ultimately would be dead-ended by virtue of uh, things that, that I knew the company was going to be looking for for promotable type people. Um, and, uh, so is it, 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 I didn't care if they're men, women, you know, but, but again, the, the fact that they were open-minded, flexible, that they had shown some level of flexibility in their previous jobs, uh, and some of the leadership and, and, you know, in your interview, you would probe them for examples of where they showed leadership or, and, and, and so something as tangible as it can be, given the fact that they're telling you a story that you can't verify, uh, you know, you know, you get these people that say, I increased productivity by 192% and you're like, okay, well, I, I don't know what that means, okay, but, but you can, you can carve it. You can, you can ask enough questions to find out whether they're really being truthful or whether they're throwing you a line. Uh, but taking the time to literally sit down and, and, and talk to these folks. Now we had, we had interview guides and then we were, we were actually asked to, you know, when we did assessments on these folks to determine who we wanted to hire, because it got more sophisticated as time moved on. But, 
but you know, there's, you can always sense when somebody's there to, that's, that's really truly interested in the job as opposed to somebody um, that is, I don't know. Just maybe, trying to find something to do. It, correct. Like I had one gentleman, I'll never forget while we were in the middle of this interview process and he comes in and I was like, you realize this is shift work. And he's like, well, I'm not working the back shift. And I was like, okay, well, wow. I don't know why we're spending any time with you then kind of a thing. But, you know, but, but that was like one time that ever happened to me, mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, but it actually caught HR and myself because HR was always in the interview process with us. But, um, but I was like, Whoa, this would caught me totally off guard. It's like, why is he even here? Right. <laughs> you know, somebody didn't do their job, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, and I don't know. I, I'm not a look people tell me I'm super duper naive and I and I have a tendency to believe good things about people as opposed to the negative sides um, but you know part of it was having a conversation and, and just trying to get to what motivates people uh, because from there you can figure out whether they're going to be a good fit or not so, okay so the motivation piece got it yeah. that that yeah I, that's yeah that's good to really figure that out I like that um what, how did your role change from, you know, going from being in charge of starting, you know, down in the primary processing where you're, you're in charge of just like a few employees? Because for those of you who don't know, in Philip Morris, they, when I worked there, and I would imagine, it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Janet, but there was a union, which all the people that were operating the piece of equipment and fixing the piece of equipment, and this is like, this is this can be standard across a lot of manufacturing across the United States. Um, not every state, but there is, it's in a lot of places. And there's a union that is the hourly workforce is what it's called. And then you have the salaried folks that are like the management structure. And then the hourly is operating the equipment and fixing the equipment and kind of doing, producing the product, et cetera. Correct. As your role went from being in charge of hourly workforce to now a department head managing really salaried people. And then eventually as the plant was shutting down, which I want to dive into a little bit next. Okay. Um, what, like, what did you have to change in yourself? Because now oh. you're, now you're paying attention to more. When I was there, it's like, I'm trying charge of eight hours, right? I'm in charge right. of the looking at the numbers that come off there. And really was, I was in like, as my role, it was like managing folks, you know, instead of, I didn't run the equipment, you can't, you know, it's all that stuff. So how did your role shift from those timeframes? <clears throat> well, to your point, Mike, when I first got in there, I might've had uh, eight to 12 people I was responsible for, for that eight hour shift and making sure that they worked the appropriate overtime. And at which point in time, they were no longer my responsibility, but, uh, so you're right. As I became a manager, I was, I was, or as a group supervisor, let's just go there, which was a role they ended up getting rid of eventually. But so I went from being an individual person responsible for hourly work to being a group supervisor that was responsible for, let's say three supervisors. And then ultimately uh, that area and that shift. So I had eight hours responsibility for, not just, for example, the receiving department on my shift, but I had the receiving conditioning and blending department. So now I might have uh, three supervisors and 
each one of their roles was distinctive from the standpoint that a receiving department had different accountability versus a blending department per se. But ultimately, there were fundamentals that were exactly the same amongst all the supervisors. You know, you make sure your people are here on time, your payroll, your, you know, making sure people are, you know, adhering to their, uh, uh, showing up on time and, and all the disciplinary action associated with those sorts of things. And, and as I, so, so you're, you begin to get a broader perspective, same shift. Then, then you become a manager of a department. So my first managerial job was in um, finished goods. So it was the first time I had a managerial responsibility for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, across three shifts, basically. So I had, I had supervisors on all three shifts. And so now I could not delve into, I mean, I, I never, ever, ever was ever far away from the opportunity to walk out on the floor, regardless of the role that I was in. I always stayed engaged on the floor. If that was a walkthrough uh, later on in my career, but as a manager, I was always on, uh, not always, I won't say always, because God knows there was enough meetings, but I would spend time on the floor to remaining connected to my workforce on the floor, as well as my supervision, because I never wanted to rely exclusively on a manager's perspective in terms of when they were assessing an, one of their supervisors. I always wanted to understand that supervisor. So I would continue to contact the supervisor and then their workforce. So, I mean, I, but I always made sure the supervisors knew that when I was going on the floor, it was never, it was never in a role to go look for something wrong. It was more of a connection. Hey, I'm going to do a walk through primary. Do you mind? Not do you mind, but I'm, I'm walking through primary. Uh, it, it, just so that my manager, my supervisors are never on the defensive, unless they had something to hide, okay? <laughs> mm -hmm. right. uh, but that was part of my way of keeping grounded, of keeping aware of what was going on, and quite frank, sort of a finger on the pulse. Um, so, so as a manager, I was now responsible for a budget for the whole department, which was brand new to me, uh, you know, What's fixed? What's a fixed budget? What's a variable budget? Uh, you know, so you begin to learn the accounting side of the business that I really never had to do when I was, you know, in a supervisory or group supervisor type role. And even when I was a manager in primary, we had a we had an overarching guy that managed the budget, <clears throat> and he'd tell us when we were out of compliance. But when I was in finished goods, it was be the really beginning process of. Um, you know, how do you manage those sorts of things and anticipate uh, paying for meetings and those sorts of things uh, when you took your workforce off the floor because you had to pay your hourly workforce for every minute they were in the plant. Uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. But, and, and then I was also learning about how to begin to impact, like uh, every couple of years we'd have union negotiations. So it was like, how do you begin to, uh, establish a perspective on uh, what you would like to have next time union negotiations comes around. Something that you would throw on the table to say, hey, I want more flexibility 
whatever, uh, understanding that, that as a manager in that part of the plant, to your point, Mike, you had, you had the BCT, the employees underneath one union, the, the maintenance and electricians were in another union, but, but ultimately I couldn't negotiate separately. Uh, I could, I could make suggestions on how it would, how I would like things to change in the contract to, to improve my little world. But ultimately, it affected the whole world of, of the plant under that union leadership and under negotiations that was managed by the plant management team. But, but yeah, so, so I, I worked a lot of hours. Just ask my daughter. I mean, she would tell you that I was never home. <laughs> but um, it wasn't because I didn't trust my folks. It's just that I, I was uh, – I was I, – Responsibility. I, yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to know. And, um, and it was important to me to touch base with all my supervisors on all three shifts. Not every day, but ultimately, um, you know, you, you'd meet an outgoing shift on third shift. So you'd be in at 630 in the morning to talk to that crew uh, and be there for the kickoff of the next shift. Not that I was running it, but it was like, hey, what's going on? What's going on in your shift? Any issues going on sort of a thing. Um, you know, and maybe some managers, as I grew through the through levels of leadership, there might have been some managers that really didn't like it because, um, because, well, for whatever reason, you know, some people like their, to manage their own business very close to their close to their vest. Others are very relatively open, but ultimately, you're always protecting your people or yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> and whatever might be your priority. Um, I, I, I usually, Miss Wagner would always tell me I was stupidly naive and, and that I would, I was very open and I was way too open at times and, and allowing myself to be vulnerable. But I was like, I don't know what I'm vulnerable to except uh, the dishonesty of others. Um, but, but, you know, so it was an opportunity to, to begin to mold the department and to begin to look at, I mean, it was like my whole little, I want to call it a little fiefdom that I could make sure compliance, you know, we had management to, uh, you know, the safety rules and violations were, were adhered to with a level of strictness that I could manage within my department. Um, so there were certain things that I could affect all by myself that I that I was responsible for, that that I would adhere to, that didn't have global implications. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also learned that was sort of like a, my little microcosm to learn in that at, when I would moved into the the director position in primary, which is my first director position, um, I could take the learnings what worked and what didn't work um, from a smaller pool <laughs> into a a larger arena. Um, Got it. Yeah, I just, I'm noticing that because I remember when I started my USANA business, you know, when I lived in North Carolina, it was just like myself in my office or in my spare bedroom um, there. And now that we have employees and like I just, I've spent like the last three weeks like on bookkeeping stuff with our accountant, you know, and our new bookkeeper and how roles have changed, which is just now it's started, it's part of running a different show basically. Right. Yep. yep. Okay. Now I want to ask about, um, how, <laughs> what was the process for you to be able to, cause 
they one day the CEO came down from you know Richmond, Virginia and said they were going to shut our facility down that had I think what 3000 people, is that right? Yep, pretty close. So 3000 people and we're all going to either some of us will get to keep our jobs but some people will lose their jobs. And like then you get the beautiful role of running the plant to close it out. Yep. <laughs> So like, how did you keep it together? You know, cause that, I remember I had to walk folks out on my, their last day of work because you know, they, there was their time to get laid off and like that was, and I was like 26. Right. And I only did that to one or two people. Yeah. Before you got walked out. Before I got walked out. Right. So yeah. what well, I'll tell you, Mike, um, the night he came down, because the, the CEO would come down twice a year to kind of give us a status update and communicate to the plant and everybody. So he would, you know, he'd invariably have two meetings and people would stay over. Anyway, and he would always come in the night before. Um, and we would, the members of the plant management team would always be invited to dinner to sit down with Mr. Mike. And uh, Mr. Semantic would invariably share what he could or you know it was a chance for us to talk to him because you know uh basically we're just a plant management team from a, one of the manufacturing facilities but so the night that they came down um uh, you know i i'll never forget it's just sort of those events it's like the night that so-and-so gets hurt or shot or whatever where were you when the whatever um uh, and I remember him leaving the room, which was not atypical. He had, he's like, I got to take a phone call. I'll be right back. And he comes back in the room. But what was different this time is he closed the doors and he said, okay, what I'm getting ready to tell you, um, you cannot communicate. You cannot. And I'm sitting there going, oh, wow. What? And one of my peers who had been through something similar before, I think around Marlboro Friday, and that's a whole different thing. Basically, it was now insider trading. It was an opportunity for people to, let alone that you didn't want to disrupt the workforce, right? So correct. Basically, this, Philip Morris is a public company. For those of you who don't know, and because it's owned by shareholders, for those of public companies, anything that's told like inside of a factory that's significant that can affect the stock price has to be made public at the same time. For the most part, that's correct. So we were under this umbrella of. You can't say anything until it's announced tomorrow morning. And I think everybody around the table just sort of stopped eating. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like uh, after that, it's, I don't remember much other than then. I mean, we're all stunned because uh, here was an example of a facility that was meeting and exceeding targets. They're, they're the low cost producer. We had the best sanitation scores. We had the best teams. You know, uh, that's a whole different conversation, Mike, one day, mm -hmm. but, but I mean, our teams were clicking when, when people were saying teams would never, never make it in a union environment. But I'll tell you these. So, I mean, it was like when it came to quality, cost of the business, everything, sanitation, all these measures, we were ahead of our peer up the road. Um, so when they announced this closing, basically they were consolidating operations in Richmond and, and what precipitated this consolidation was the split of the company decided to split international and nationally. So Philip Morris International 
uh, and then PM USA or Altria, excuse me, uh, the decision to split meant that the international company was going to pull its production volume with it. And therefore, we didn't have enough capacity. We didn't have enough, well, we had ex asset, sorry, excess capacity. And we were going to consolidate it all in one facility. And the decision was to put it in the Richmond facility, which stunned all of us. And, and retrospectively, it really shouldn't have. But, uh, but because we were- It shouldn't have stunned you? Is well, it, it shouldn't have been a surprise from the standpoint of headquarters had moved from New York to Richmond, the uh, R&D center was in Richmond, you know, so all of these yep. centers were in Richmond and it was like, why would you have manufacturing 250 miles down the road when there's a manufacturing plant 10 miles down the road, you know? So from that perspective, that made, that made, that's the only thing that made sense to me uh, when all the numbers at our facility in the in the Carolinas would have said this, if you had to choose two and everything was equal, which one would you have chosen? It would not have been the Richmond facility, but, uh, but it, there was a lot of things behind the scenes and a lot of numbers that got crunched and a lot of things that factored into it that I, that I don't, had no privy of knowing, but ultimately just from a very superficial perspective, we were, we were surprised, stunned. And so the management team was told to, uh, to put together a plan uh, so that we would arrange to shut the factory down the next morning, which in and of itself uh, was very different than what we would have typically done. But the intent here was to communicate to uh, as many people within the facility as we could, to Mike's point, so that when it was communicated publicly, it was all done at the same time. So, Go ahead. And this is, this was also done, sorry, this was also done differently than, because you hear it now all the time, plants closing, stores closing, and like you walk in and there's a piece of paper, like employees, there's a restaurant in Maine that closed, and I know restaurants much smaller than the scale of what Philip sure. Morrison, but it's like the employees walked into work that morning and there's a sign that says you're no longer open. Oh, and yeah, no. Yeah. Close it down. So like, when there's factories that this happens to all the time where factories, sure. the doors are shut overnight. And sure. the, the piece was like, you'll have three, I think it was three years or something to do this transition because it required there is a massive transition that took place. So how, oh, yeah. like that night, did you like sleep? Like, were you guys up all night planning what to do next? Like what was the, what happened after that meeting before well, they announced the, the next morning when it was announced to the rest of the employees, but like, in that but, session well basically before we even left the restaurant that night uh our our boss gary uh he basically pulled us together and said okay guys <laughs> uh, you can't do you can't because you have third shift people that work typically well if they work a 12-hour shift they don't go home until three o'clock in the morning the, he didn't want anybody in the facility before for example five in the morning so he didn't want to give third shift a sort of a heads up like why are all these members of the plt showing up in the plant at three o'clock you know or at midnight oh, yeah. mm -hmm. so at the end of the day we we were told to stay the heck out of the factory until at at least after four in the morning but his intent was bring your people together 
um, to shut down, however you got to do an orderly, quote unquote, orderly shutdown, because some of these processes you can't just shut down, right? Um, to bring uh, an orderly shutdown so that you can have as many people at this meeting, I think it was at 7.30 in the morning, uh, or no, it was right at seven o'clock in the morning because we wanted the third shift outgoing to uh, be available for the meeting and we wanted the first shift people that were oncoming to be at that meeting, also, as many as we could get into the cafeteria. So when we, when I came in about five o'clock in the morning, I, I basically could not tell anybody what was happening. I just had to let them know that they needed to have the factory, the, the process shut down in such a manner so that they could have as many employees um, available for a meeting at seven o'clock in the morning. That, so that in and of itself, you know, of course the managers or the supervisors, because most managers didn't work the back shifts like that. The supervisors were sort of looking at you like, what the heck, what's going on? And I'm like, I can't. And, and basically they know something big is happening because I wear my heart on my sleeve. And I'll tell you, it broke my heart when we were, when I found out about this. So, but you know, you go in there and, and be as unemotional as you possibly can within reason. I mean, because you have a certain personality anyway, uh, but ultimately, uh, try to, you know, you, you can't answer any questions. It's at the end of the day, it's like, guys, I, you know, we're, go, we're all going to a meeting. We got this meeting scheduled, get everybody into it. Uh, you know, and just, you just made sure that you try to keep a calm group. Of, so people wouldn't get hurt. People start to panic. They start to do stupid things. You know, there's, so it was, it was around gathering a manage, the, the management staff that you had on that shift, getting them together to say, okay, guys, this is what we got to do. We got a meeting scheduled. You tell me the best way that we need to shut this thing down so everything is down and we don't have any product at risk um, so that when we come back and start the process back up. So again, you're engaging them and trying to be part of the solution, uh, knowing that at the end of the day that there's a goal to have as many people in this meeting at seven o'clock in the morning, per se. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a very, 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 very long night. <laughs> yeah. And probably a long, cause it ended up, it didn't take three years. It took us two. It almost, almost, uh, yeah, we announced the closing in June of 2009 and no, 2007, sorry. And shut it down in July of 2009. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, when I left, it took it was still, I guess, February was uh, 2009 was my last February 6th, I believe. Yeah. Um, or no, it was December because in February it surged. Yeah. Something like that. And it, yeah, it was, it was really moving towards being empty, you know, like it was continually, sure. there's, was, there's was a lot of equipment that ended up leaving. Yep. Um, okay. I want to talk about your kind of the transition that you had into retirement basically. Okay. And because you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the call due to domestic violence with your daughter and what that has been like for you of this kind of new role on life from running, running a plant, working in manufacturing for 31 years. And then kind of now your booming art career, you know, <laughs> how, cause that like, that was a pretty traumatic experience to go through. Yes. Um, it was. And just what was that? 
you know, for you to overcome massive kind of adversity to your only daughter to be a single mom during this entire time to go through something that was really in super intense. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, um, it's, uh, in a nutshell, uh, I had, I, I had come down to visit, uh, from Richmond, my daughter was living in my home here in North Carolina because I, I knew ultimately when I retired, I'd be coming back. Um, so she was living in my home and I came home for the weekend. And so uh, long story short, her ex-husband um, uh, shot her twice and then, um, and then killed himself on basically my front stoop. And I thank God I was here because I, I actually kept her alive until the ambulance showed up. And so, um, what, what I didn't realize at the time was, um, well, first of all, I didn't know if she was going to survive it, but, but upon her survival, what we found out was that she is uh, permanently paralyzed. And, uh, so I went from, so like you said, Mike, I was responsible for this department up in Richmond to, to absolutely, uh, you know, a whole different reality of trying to figure out whether she, you didn't know if she was going to live, what the status was. I found out that next morning that the chances were she'd be paralyzed. I didn't know what the heck that meant. Um, and because I'd never thought about paralysis per se. And, um, and so, so for the first couple, uh, couple of days, you're, you're still trying to figure out whether, whether she's going to survive. Um, the paralysis is sort of a secondary issue at the time. It's like, you got to survive this thing first, but, but ultimately it, it was, it was, um, you know, intensive, intensive care, rehab, uh, multiple issues that got her rehospitalized. In the midst of all this, I was, we were going through a, a manufacturing reorganization in Richmond. So uh, after a period of time of being with her, I tried to go back to Richmond and, and fall back into my role and rely on other people to be her caregiver, uh, not realizing that, that it was a heck of a lot to ask of her friends to do. And quite frankly, I didn't understand the magnitude of, of the implication of it until, uh, until I just realized that things were just not, I couldn't do both. And, and actually I had a new boss in this whole reorg. So in the midst of the chaos of my family's life, the plant, the company is going through a manufacturing reorganization. My old boss gets ousted. Uh, a new boss comes in who I had known, but I had never worked for. Um, and ultimately, as my daughter's issues, she had ongoing issues associated with this. Uh, shortly after the first, so she, this happened in September. By shortly after the first of the year, uh, after working for my new boss for about six weeks, um, you know, he basically said, you know you got two big important jobs here. You, you, you're, you need to make a decision on which job is more important. And uh, so that was this, this horrible, hmm. it, yeah, it was, it was a real dose of, Oh my God, 
you know, that <laughs> here's a dose of reality where you go, I worked for this company for 20 plus 29 years or 28 years. And it's like, wow. Um, boy, it would have been nice if he had just pulled me aside and said, Hey, Janet, why don't you go take a medical leave yeah. and, and get your stuff together? And then, uh, Maybe at that point in time, we could have a sit-down conversation, understanding full and well that the role that will probably fill your job permanently because the job is too important to leave as an interim status for somebody. Um, but it was like this flat out, well, there's no decision to be made. I mean, unless you're really a, <laughs> a horribly callous person. I don't know. I, I don't understand. My opinion was, my daughter was more important to me. And uh, you know what? It was like, woof, let me go. So I, I basically started through the process and, and, and retired from the company um, and to be my daughter's caregiver. And the first, uh, the, I mean, the two years of her life were very, very, very rocky. Um, a lot of reconstruction, a lot of her face and stuff like this. But but two and a half, two years, 25 months after her, her, her injury, she went back to work. Uh, so up until that point in time, I was basically with her uh, uh, the most of the time and uh, helping, learning, whatever. Uh, and then ultimately, as she started to transition back to work, I was still available to her. I would take her to work because she doesn't, she still doesn't drive. So I would take her to work and then I would pick her up at the, at the end of her work day. And uh, so after four months of transition, she was back to a normal work day. And so I would drop her off in the morning and I'd pick her up in the afternoon. I was like, what do I do in between? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it was, it was my, I, I told you this before was, it was this weird, uh, it was just like, what do I do with, what do I do with the rest of my life? Because I was still 57 years old and I was like, yikes. You know, I didn't, I had no intention of ever retiring at this age. I had no real hobbies prior to her injury, uh, which is why it's really important that you establish hobbies and things you want to do. Because I quite frankly did not know what I wanted to do with my time. I didn't. And, uh, I, I was at least uh, bookended with some level of structure, which is very important to the way that I need my life to be. So for example, I'd get up in the morning, take her to work, come back, whatever, do whatever. But I knew at 4.30 in the afternoon, I'd head back down to Charlotte to go pick her up. So between that period of time, I said, you know, I, I have something to do. If I if I don't have that structure, boy, it's real easy for me to stay in my pajamas all day. Mm -hmm. uh, when I don't have a commitment to have to go somewhere. I tried many, so it's been a very, very difficult transition for me. Um, and again, it's, it's for a lot of different reasons. I, I, I spent so much time at work. I didn't establish a whole lot of friendships outside of work. Oh, by the way, the friendships I had within work were with were um, were very clearly defined because most of these people at some point in time worked for me, 
And so I could, I, again, I, I, I don't allow those lines to cross between work and French, you know, outside work because it makes it difficult to manage a situation at work, if, you know? Right. So, so what ends up happening is because I didn't establish hobbies, uh, I, when, when this event happened, I, I was at a loss for what to do with my day. And um, Mike, we kind of chuckled about my, my pets, but they kind of they fill my day. Um, and whether it's walking with them, playing with them, playing in the backyard, but it's like, it's not very emotionally stimulating, ultimately. Um, and, and to this day, I still struggle with that because, um, because it was such an abrupt change for me um, that I still struggle with it. Um, Two summers ago, I had an opportunity to start an interview for actually for a job for, for a company, and it was a plant manager position. And uh, at the time, my daughter was still- In Charlotte, like in yeah, Charlotte area. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'll tell you, that was, I think that was that finally that point where I finally said, you know, wow, I don't, I really, no, I don't think I want to do this again because I know and I knew that if I was going to jump into this role again, that it would be as, as all encompassing as it was when I worked at Philip Morris. And I was like, you know, that wasn't healthy. I, I did not have a healthy balance. Uh, <clears throat> that's my fault. Um, so, I mean, so that's, that's a caution that I would have to people. It's like, make sure you have absolute balance in your life and that your, the role or the, the position you have in your company or your company doesn't become that major factor in your life because when you have a life event, it isn't there. At the end of the day, uh, unless you're in a very unique environment, it's not there. Uh, they have responsibilities to their shareholders. They have other, they have, they have to meet certain, they have, they have production still to meet. And if, if you're not there, ultimately somebody will take your place. And, yeah. and wow. so it, it, that, that's kind of been a, this whole, wow. <laughs> so what I have found I do now is I do little things that I, that because I made some, mistakes in my daughter's care i want to help help people maybe not repeat those same uh issues in the if i can if i can affect those if that makes sense so i i volunteer as a trauma survivor uh from a caregiver perspective um uh, i do that um uh, i i now Go to a painting class once a week because I'm trying to force myself to force that side of the brain. Um, and and I, my physical exercise, I go three to four days a week. I now do kickboxing. So those are just a couple of little things. I still feel like I'm missing something, but um, I don't know. We'll figure out how to fill it in. It, thank you so much for sharing that. I... Uh... My dad's going through this actually, you know, cause he, he was kind of forced out of BP and not, he just like, they were laying people off and getting rid of, they were shutting stuff down and they basically gave him a giant lump sum to leave. Yep. 
And he's just like, well, what do I do with my day? You know, and it's been a struggle for him. Uh, we actually interviewed Kate and I interviewed my parents. Uh, what, like last year about what it was like to raise me. Um, oh, and oh so, boy. yeah, yeah, that was an adventure. But he even said like, he hates it. Like he just doesn't like retirement. Cause he's just, he, because he's the same thing. He worked so much and didn't have any hobbies. Yep. Um, there wasn't anything. And I, I would imagine there's tons of people experiencing this now. I Absolutely. Yeah. And I just, um, yeah. So th- thanks for being real about it. And, and I know, I mean, you'll keep yourself busy. And if you ever want to like start a business with some ideas, you can just talk to us and we'll figure something out for you. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to wrap up here and I just appreciate all the time. I didn't even ask you like if you had a time limit and I just kept talking and realized that we've been talking for a long time. What do you have like out of your amazing career that you lived and kind of the experience that went through with Aaron? Um, like, do you just have advice for, cause you said at the beginning, before we started recording, you said with, you were talking specifically about like your transition from Philip Morris to, care caretaking for Aaron. Um, like, do you have advice for people that are in their business career kind of to really make the most of it, you know, with the challenging family dynamics Because right now, like Kate is in a big, her main work right now is really changing the way that we have done business or thought about it because it's been so masculine driven where it's like, we have to work 80 hours, 90 hours a week. And to not to say that it doesn't always have to be that way, especially since we had a Penelope two and a half years ago, that's changed. So I don't know if there's any things when you think back to say, you know what, maybe I would do this a little bit differently or would be a good move for me to like when if I, you know, you can't really redo the past, right? So. Oh, that's true. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I think, you know, when I, when I think about manufacturing, so manufacturing typically a 24 seven, once you get the, that beast up and running, you don't shut it down. That, that in and of itself creates that, that temptation to be available whenever. Um, I, I think the importance of having, if you, if you were in an arena like that is having really, really strong people that can answer uh, and handle situations so that you're not called in the middle of the night. And, and I was very fortunate. I had some superbly strong leaders on my back shifts that um, when I did, if I ever did get a phone call, I knew it was serious. Um, but I, but from, a fam, from, a, from a personal perspective, it's like you, you got to learn how to prioritize and it's a difficult thing because depending on the environment that you're in, um, I mean, it, there are family things that are critically important to go to. You have to define what those are, but you got to give yourself permission to do it and you got to make it a priority. So if it's important that if you're, you know, whether your dog, kid is playing uh, an important soccer match or this or that, to be available to those the, the little the little people in your life uh, so that they they know they can count on you and you're, and, and you're gonna be there for them uh, you know, I, I just think sometimes I I didn't understand 
the importance of taking care of myself. Um, I, I do now at my age, I'm now much more physically active. Uh, it's harder to stay act, you know, in better sh in shape, but, but it was like, it was always an afterthought. It was like work or this or that was much more important than me. And so I think sometimes we have a tendency to sacrifice ourselves for what we perceive to be the best for something else. And at the end of the day, you find out that something else is only loyal to you to a certain point. Um, and, you, and you find out that life goes on whether you're there or not. Um, if, let me do a, shortly after this incident happened with Aaron, I'll never forget, I was pulled over by a cop for, for my vehicle not being registered. And, and it, was, it was not long after. And I, basically, I, I remember sobbing. And it was mostly, I think, PTSD from the, uh, from the flashing lights, whatever. But I remember sobbing. And it why, was why you were pulled over? Uh, while I was, I was sobbing uncontrollably. And I was like, this is not me, right? So, I mean, so this, this cop comes around and he, and he was really, I mean, he was very tentative when he came to my, because I was being almost unreasonable in terms of my emotion, right? And, uh, and, and he was like, you know, very business matter of fact, you know, license registration, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, and I'm like reaching for it, giving it to him. And he's like, do you realize your cars? And I'm like, and I tried to explain to this guy why I was sobbing, you know, and it was like, he didn't care. Uh, now that's not to say every cop is or isn't going to care, but at the end of the day, when he gave me my ticket and drove away, <laughs> uh, it was this weird sitting down going, holy cow, this was in the papers. This was a big deal because it was her, her ex-husband had been a cop. So it was a big deal in Charlotte, but, but I'm sitting there going, so I would have figured that this guy would have been aware of it, but it was like, I, it was like when he finally drove away and I sat there in the car while I calmed down, it was this weird thing of, wow, life goes on like nothing ever happened. Like my event in my life doesn't affect this guy. Why would I expect it to affect this guy? And it was this reality that life goes on. And, you know, that it, it was like this aha moment for me. And I was like, it was no different than work. But so I think because that grim react, that sort of happened, I was like, and if I had known that at the end of the day, that life just friggin' goes on. Yeah, somebody's going to be sad, whatever, for a little period of time, but your life goes on. You get past it. But at the end of the day, I said, maybe I would have, maybe I would have enjoyed myself a little more along the way. Hmm. I would have, I would have looked for those things that were more enjoyable to me and I wouldn't have fretted so much about something that at the end of the day, it meant nothing except for a very short period of time. Jane Anderson, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. I Is there any place that people can connect with you if they desire to, or if you want people to connect with you? I don't know. Sure. You can give my email. Okay. 
whatever or whatever mechanism that you, you that you suggest yeah we'll uh we'll f- there'll be a place that you can connect with janet afterwards i'll figure out where to do that you can okay, s- find it in the show notes and connect with her i appreciate the time thank you so much in sharing your story thanks mike stay warm we will do What's up, people? Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. One last thing before we close it out and let you get back to your day. I've put together a free giveaway, actually, on MikeJWatts.com. You can go check it out now, but it's download my free three tools to make your business life easier starting now. And I gave away three simple tips and things that we use in our business that hands down make our life easier, that allows for scale It allows for solid operating structures so we can scale to the next level of revenue. So you can get that free giveaway. It's a PDF download. You just type it in. Plus, you'll also be on my weekly newsletter that goes out every Friday. And I really love it because it's three to four things that I really found valuable in the week and that hopefully you enjoy as well. So you can get all that downloaded over at MikeJWatts.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there. And I'll see you guys on the next episode of Project Life. Cheers.